you turn in your scriptures now to the book of 1 Corinthians as we look into the Word of God, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We have been covering various issues that the Corinthian church has been addressing, everything from divisions to lawsuits to morality to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we have been on that particular subject for a number of weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. And therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are various gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks for Your Word. We pray, Father, that Your Spirit would fill us, that we might have understanding, that He might open the eyes of our heart we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been covering a number of spiritual gifts as they've been listed here in the text. The overarching principle as you look at this particular passage is that the spiritual gifts have been given to people who are part of the body of Christ, to God's children. Each one has a different set of gifts that God has uniquely given to you as a spiritual snowflake, as it were. We've looked at the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the gift of faith, some of the sign miracles, such as the gift of healing, the gift of miracles. And just as a preface to the message today, again, it's not intended in any way to be... Divisive among those who might not see things in the same way as you or I may. There are many who, though, because of 
the growth of the charismatic or the Pentecostal movement have come to accept gifts as very valid. And at issue is not their heart for the Lord, is not at issue of their passion or not lack thereof. It is not that. There are passionate and dispassionate people, depending upon how you look at the gifts and that I shared with you before. There are primarily those who believe in the cessation of the gifts and those who would be non-cessationists or continuationists, divided up in different views. It is not an issue of their love for the Lord. What is at issue sometimes, depending upon the gift though, is whether or not there is continuing revelation given today outside of the scriptures. It is at issue the authority and the sole authority of the word of God. And at issue perhaps even the spiritual growth of a believer. It's not my intention neither to to posit a a full examination of each gift in depth. In fact, when you begin studying the subject of spiritual gifts, you'll find that there are books upon books written on one gift alone. But it's important that we know and we learn and we hear some of the major issues related to the gifts. And today we'll be looking at the gift of prophecy, the gift of distinguishing of spirits, the gift of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And so we begin here in verse 10, the latter part of verse 10, with the gift of prophecy. In a 60 Minutes interview with Ed Bradley, those of you who watch, it's... Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Denzel Washington, uh, actor, had an interview with Ed Bradley, sharing about a particular moment, a pivotal moment in his life. Washington was in college at the time, not in the time of the interview, but back when he was describing this time, and he was dealing with questions about his future, and he sat in a chair in his mother's beauty salon, and he saw an elderly lady in the mirror. She stared at Denzel, so the account went, and she suddenly spoke to his mother saying, Give me a piece of paper. And on the paper, she wrote, she said, I I have a word for Denzel. And she wrote, You will speak to millions. And that's it. Denzel asked his mother who the woman was, and she said, She is one of the oldest women at Mount Vernon, Denzel's church. And she has the gift of prophecy. For him, it was a defining moment in his life. Now, among charismatics, the gift of prophecy is often referred to like that. A word from the Lord for so-and-so, a word from so-and-so, etc. to you. The sign gift of prophecy they'd like to share with you. And with the rise of the signs and wonders movement, as I described last week, or the third wave, as was termed by C. Peter Wagner of Fuller Seminary, the gift of prophecy has become much more prominent. Wayne Grudem in the late 1970s began writing quite a bit on the subject of the gift of prophecy and later on came out in a series of articles in Christianity Today. I remember I was in seminary in the early 90s and these articles were coming out and I was reading into them, reading them and hearing of a different type of view. His basic premise was that that of the continuation of the gift of prophecy, but it is not like that of the Old Testament prophets, nor was it like that of the apostles. Grudem writes, quote, much more commonly, 
prophet and prophecy were used in ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something God has laid on their heart or brought to their minds. There are many indications in the New Testament that this ordinary gift of prophecy had authority less than that of the Bible, even less than that of recognized Bible teaching in the early church, unquote. He also writes, quote, If I, as I do in this book, that the apostles could prophesy with absolute divine authority, but that ordinary congregational prophets did not have that kind of authority, am I then saying that there are two kinds of prophecy in the New Testament? Some could make that distinction, and in fact, I did speak that way in an earlier, more technical book on the subject in keeping with the terminology that has been used in previous scholarly discussions on prophecy. Phil Johnson writes in his blog spot, Probably the single most important and influential book written to defend modern prophecy in reference to Wayne Grudem's book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament. Grudem writes that no responsible charismatic holds the view that prophecy today is infallible and inerrant revelation from God. He says charismatics are arguing for a lesser kind of prophecy which is not on the same level as the inspired prophecies of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. Furthermore, Grudem writes, there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that today's prophecy is impure and will contain elements which are not to be obeyed or trusted. Again, Jack Deere former Dallas Seminary professor turned charismatic advocate admits in his book Surprised by the Power of the Spirit that he has not seen anyone today performing miracles or possessing gifts of the same equality as the signs and wonders of the apostolic era. In fact, he vehemently argues throughout the book that modern charismatics do not even claim to have apostolic quality gifts and miracle working abilities. One of the main lines of defense against critics of the charismatic argument is his insistence that modern charismatic gifts, modern charismatic gifts are actually lesser gifts than those available in the apostolic era. And therefore he suggests they should not be held to apostolic standards. In other words, there is the view that prophecy or the gift of miracles or whatever it would be would be different than those in the New Testament text across the board from they themselves. And that those prophecies are different than the Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, and that they can be wrong at times. In fact, where there are New Testament prophets who are novices, you'll find there are writings that will say that Basically, there's a certain percentage when they're a new, new individual who's having the gift of prophecy, that their prophecies will be sometimes right, sometimes wrong. And a good prophet, one who is experienced at using their gift, will be 85%, 95% right. But over time, they will get better and better. John White, an author and a defender of the Kansas City prophets, writes, quote, Prophets are, of course, human beings. As such, they can make mistakes and lie. They need not cease to be prophets for their mistakes and failings. And that is something that needs to be noted because if they didn't, it would be huge, hugely problematic.
In Deuteronomy 18, if you look in your scriptures there, in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, last book of the Pentateuch that is written by Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses notes this as he writes the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. There's instruction to Israel at this time about prophets. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. It says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is a thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, in the Old Testament, the standard for a prophet was truthfulness was 100% truthfulness, and if it did not come true, then there would be a penalty, a very severe penalty, and that penalty would be the penalty of death. And yet, today, many will need to say, if they believe in the gift of prophecy, that it's not the same, because obviously, if it was the same, the penalty would be death. They would open the door, then, to false prophets, False prophets who would come and say anything. And then they could just say, well, it was just a mistake this time. I'm just beginning to learn. Or they might say whatever and just say, well, it will be better the next time. Or whatever it might be. But you realize the whole sentiment behind the thing. Those that hold to these gifts such as prophecy today, that there are modern day prophets, knowing that they are not the same as those in the New Testament times, or even in the Old Testament times, in actuality, agree with the heart of a cessationist. A cessationist argument basically says, well, the gifts are not the same as those in the New Testament. You'll find it very difficult to find a person who is truly a genuine, consistent continuationist. A consistent individual who says all the gifts not only exist today, but they're exactly the same as in the scriptures. After all, most will concede that there are no more apostles. There are no more apostles today. And even those very few who believe in apostles are not of the same caliber as those in the New Testament times. And so you'll find that most, if not all, will have the heart really to say that, you know what, it is not the same as those in the New Testament times, even by some of the leading theologians within the movement. Now, among Christians in general, this gift of prophecy is not the same as those in the scriptures. Charismatics will say it continues, but the prophecy that comes from God is different today. Now, some those who don't believe in prophecy as it is will say that it perhaps might be the gift of preaching today or foretelling. And so what is the gift of prophecy? The word prophecy can include both foretelling the future as well as foretelling of God's word. And some would hold to that. Some very good Bible teaching individuals would say that it is the equivalent to preaching today. Very reputable individuals. Paul Enns of the Moody Bible Handbook of Theology writes this though. 
Through direct revelation, the prophet received knowledge of divine mysteries that man would not otherwise know. Prior to the completion of the canon, the gift of prophecy was important for the edification of the church. The prophet received direct revelation from God, taught the people for their edification, exhortation, and consolation. Since the revelation came from God, it was true. The genuineness of the prophet was exhibited in the accuracy of the prophecy. Prophecy thus involved both foretelling the future and foretelling God's truth in terms of exhortation and instruction. The gift of prophecy is also related to the foundation of the church. Because the foundation of the church has been laid and the canon of Scripture is complete, there is no need for the gift of prophecy. Ephesians 2.20, which he references, if you'll turn there with me, Ephesians 2.20 is another key passage in relationship to the text. Ephesians chapter 2, we look at verse 19. Paul, the same author as the author of the book of 1 Corinthians, writes this. In Ephesians chapter 2, the New Testament, verse 19. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the church in the early church needed to be laid. There needed to be the apostles. There needed to be the prophets. And no more is there a need for the foundation to be laid over and over again. Now, some will argue with the text and say, well, you know what? The foundation does need to be relayed again and again. What about other places where there are no churches? We need a prophet out there in some far-fetched mission field. We need apostles as well, they would say. And if that were the case, that they could not do without the foundation being laid, then it would be consistent to say, well, hey... We need also Jesus Christ to be here in person as well to lay the cornerstone of what that is. We'd advocate the foundation of the church has been laid for 2,000 years plus. We need to understand that the prophets and the apostles are not gifts that are continuous today. And at the, at the other end, those who would advocate would even admit they are not the same as those in the New Testament times. There's certainly preachers today that proclaim the Word of God. There are certainly those that will speak forth and be forthtelling of the Word of God. And there's some debate as to whether or not that prophecy means that of forthtelling. But whatever it is, it certainly isn't the same as that of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament times spoken of in this text. Secondly, there is the gift of distinguishing of spirits. Verse 10. Distinguishing of spirits. First John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from the Lord, because of many false prophets have gone out into the world. This particular gift is sometimes called the gift of discernment. And that's how it's translated in some translations. And the basic idea is the distinguishing of what is true from what is false. And that was especially important in the New Testament church. 
When the word of God was not been completed, there was not that canon to compare everything with. The gift was very important. It is still important today. It was in 1 Corinthians 14, a couple of chapters over, verse 29. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. The idea behind distinguishing the word there or that of evaluating means to carefully, to judge, to distinguish between that which is true and that which is false. Somebody will come along and say though, but isn't that judging other people? Isn't that judging when the scriptures say, don't judge lest you yourself be judged? Wasn't Jesus saying that on the Sermon on the Mount? And he does. In fact, some say it's perhaps the best known verse in uh, the scriptures in America. As people often say that, don't judge. Is it forbidding any type of judgment? Is it forbidding any type of judgment call? It's not forbidding any and all type of judgment. In that context of the Sermon on the Mount, it's against judging with a hypocritical, judgmental attitude that judges motives which we often don't see. It's call against the self-righteous judgment that the Pharisees and the religious teachers of that time had to take the log out of one's own eye first before trying to help somebody else. It doesn't say take the log out of your own eye and don't help the other person with a splinter at all. But it's to be a call to self-examination for the oftentimes it's easier to see the faults in someone else than it is to see our own faults. Admittedly, you and I, we make judgments all the time when it comes to biblical teaching. When we are to judge and compare what we're hearing with what the Word of God says, just like the Bereans even searched the Scriptures diligently. When Paul had come and taught, distinguishing truth from error. And in our day and age, in our day and age, false teaching flourishes because of freedoms that we have. You don't find false teachers who will flourish quite so plentifully in countries that are persecuted because the cost is too high. You'll find them flourishing where there's acceptance of most anything. You'll find it when our society, for example, is very postmodern. What works for you is fine. Where there's a tolerance of various things, whether it be Catholicism or alternative lifestyle of homosexuality or the prosperity gospel or for off-color speech or whatever it may be. Just in the past couple of weeks, I was considering actually attending a particular conference by a Christian organization. And I noticed one of the workshop hosts had a background from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the workshop hosts appeared to be Mormon, so I wrote to the conference sponsor and I said, well, uh, you know, uh, this appears this way, uh, am I right or wrong? And they wrote back just last week. They said, you are correct. So-and-so is a Mormon. Such and such conference is not a theological conference and provides no spiritual leadership or training. We have invited... Everyone interested in the Bible and this particular subject and have placed no theological limitations on who can participate, unquote. 
And while I understand perhaps their desire because it perhaps might, in a sense, not relate, the Bible of the Mormons is wholly different than the Bible which Protestant evangelicals use. That's a problem with discernment. Discernment that needs to be done. And although we don't have prophets in the same sense of New Testament times, there's still a need, very much so, for discernment, as God has gifted some to be very discerning, to know that which is true from that which is false, that things such as money or popularity do not drive what is true. The gift of discernment is given by the Spirit of God and is still necessary today. Then we come to perhaps the last two in this particular list. Verse 10, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Of all the spiritual gifts, the gift of tongues is perhaps the one gift over which there is great debate. It's one which is most obviously practiced gift among Pentecostals and Charismatics. And as I've shared with you before, there's a difference in theology. Those who are Pentecostals traditionally trace their roots back to 1901 in which there is the belief that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens after salvation and when one is baptized by the Spirit of God they will evidence that baptism in the speaking in tongues. Charismatics don't necessarily hold to that nor do those of the third wave. The baptism of the Holy Spirit we will look at more in the coming weeks when we come across that in the text to come. But we'll also cover more about the abuse of tongues in the Corinthian church in chapter 14. But what is the gift of tongues? Speaking in tongues, the New Bible Dictionary says in glossolalia, which is the word coming from two words, glossa, which is a tongue, and lalia, which is to speak, is a spiritual gift and is mentioned several times in the scriptures. But for now, we'll take a snapshot of what this gift is. When God created Adam and Eve, everyone spoke the same language. Everyone spoke the same language and they communicated with God the same language and so did their children. Through the fall of man, through the flood, everyone spoke the same language. But then came in Genesis 11, when man decided they wanted to build a tower to heaven It's part of a religious type of inclination. They wanted to reach heaven. And since that time, God decided at that time that He would bring judgment and that of confusion of their language. Various languages all around the world were born. And it won't be until the end times that once again there will be common praise to God. But the gift of tongues, if we turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, we see the first occurrence in Acts chapter 2 of the gift of tongues. Chapter 2. And here Luke records in a very careful way the history, the inception of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It reads... When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own Tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying with one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Now, very obviously, when we look at this text, the speaking of tongues was in a known language was in a known language. Once again, Wayne Grudem, who is a charismatic or a non-cessationist, would concur, saying, Now, at Pentecost, speech in tongues was in known languages that were understood by those who heard. Although he goes on to say that speakers perhaps did not understand what they were saying. Some may understand this was a miracle of hearing. But in either way, it was a display a first display of the gift of tongues, that of a known language. There really is very little debate as to whether or not this was a known language. In fact, it lists all of those who were from different parts of the region who heard in their own language. And this is important. This is important because one of the things that is posited today is that tongues is an unintelligible utterance. That it is an ecstatic utterance or it is a language, an angelic language. And they take that from the book of 1 Corinthians. If we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, the main passage by which that is taken is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Often heard of at weddings, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1, where Paul says this, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Those who are charismatics will advocate there are such things as tongues of angels, particularly in this passage. When you look at the passage, though, and the context in which Paul is speaking, particularly in verses 2 and 3, the verbs within that passage are subjunctive. And you say, well, what does subjunctive mean? Emmanuel Greek Grammar of the Greek New Testament says, quote, While the indicative indicates reality or assumes reality, the subjunctive assumes unreality. It is the first step away from that which is actual in the direction of that which is only conceivable, unquote. In other words, what Paul is saying here in verse 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 is that even if someone could know all mysteries, could have all faith, could surrender their body to be burned, even if somebody could give up all their possessions, even if somebody could be a person who could speak in all the tongues of men or of even of angels, it would mean nothing without love. It is exaggerated language in order to make a point. 
It is exaggerated language and we do that ourselves in our own speech. We say something that is hyperbolic in order that we want to make a point to get a point across. And this is the only passage that makes a reference to so-called angelic language. But let's suppose, let's suppose there was none of that grammar or the text didn't indicate that or you couldn't draw that from there. Hypothetically though, for reasons if this did refer to languages of angels, then it would be the case too. One would assume not only were there languages of angels, but there were languages of men, known languages. But the issue at hand, perhaps this is the simplest way sometimes when I'm asked, how do I know or why do I believe what I believe? This is perhaps the simplest reasoning that I can give without being overly technical about some of the passages. The simplest way is to just simply look at the modern day tongue-speaking churches. Modern day tongue-speaking churches. You would assume if there were tongues of men and of angels, maybe half would speak a known language that they themselves don't know, and the half would speak an angelic language. Or maybe a quarter. Or maybe a tenth. Or maybe one percent would be in those churches and they would be speaking in a language that they don't know, but a known language. They'd be speaking Thai or Arabic, or they'd be speaking Farsi or Russian or Chinese or whatever it may be. They don't know it, but it is a known language. You would find somebody... As it is, no one does. You hear about them perhaps, but not in the modern day churches. When you go there, it is always a type of ecstatic utterance. It is always a type of language that is not known. And if it were angelic languages spoken of in 1 Corinthians, it would be somewhat quizzical because in verse 8, someday it says tongues will cease. Now, that is a debatable point among those who are charismatic and those who are not. Does it cease during the closing of the canon? Does it cease when Christ comes again? But whatever it is, tongues will cease. And the quizzical thing would be, why would angelic languages cease? Why would angelic languages cease to be existence? And lastly, if it were an angelic language, you look at the scriptures... What is the language that angels often speak? Always it is a known language, whether it's Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, or whatever it might be. It wasn't some type of utterance in which angels would be speaking. It is foisted upon the text, and it is not found there. And so it's an important point that those languages that were spoken were known languages, maybe not to the speakers, of course, but they were known languages. It would not be some sort of utterance of unintelligible language. But what is the purpose of tongues? What was the purpose of tongues? The purpose of the gift of tongues is clear. And it was a sign for unbelievers. It was a sign for unbelievers. Those who were not Christians. It says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. Very clearly. 1 Corinthians 14.22 So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And then in Mark 16, Mark 16, verse 17 through 20. Some might debate over the inclusion of this particular text, but Mark 16, verses 17 through 20, the end of the book of Mark, 
It says in verse 17 of chapter 16, These signs, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents and they will drink any deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. God confirmed the word with these signs. And these signs, they'd pick up snakes. They'd drink poison. They would cast out demons. They would speak with tongues. They would lay their hands and people would recover, etc., And if one takes this text as a valid inclusion in the text of Mark, then one cannot say, well, I'm simply going to take tongues out of this. They cannot say, well, you know what? How about drinking this poison or handling this snake for me or whatever it might be? Would you lay your hands on me? I have a cold. The purpose of tongues is not to show that somebody's been baptized by the Spirit of God. It was a sign to confirm the word. Verse 20. And that is why it is known as a sign gift. Lastly, history. History records that the sign gifts have faded in existence. History records this. As you look in the books, as they were written in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians was one of the early books written. And there were about a dozen books that the Apostle Paul wrote after the book of 1 Corinthians. Tongues is only mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Acts as well. Those two particular epistles, aside from Mark, of course, but Paul wrote at least a dozen epistles and it is not mentioned later on in books that were written later on by Peter, by James, by John, or even Jude. None of them wrote about tongues. We know that it was not as important as it is today. That's for sure. But it seemed to have faded in even the mention of tongues in the earliest books of the New Testament. It was also non, virtually non-existent in the post-apostolic age. The post-apostolic age, Cleon Rogers writes in a Bibsack article, which is a theological journal, he says, It is significant that the gift of tongues is nowhere alluded to, hinted at, or even found in the apostolic fathers. And the only really recorded instance of something of the tongues occurred within the first five, occurring within the first 500 years were by followers of an individual named Montanus, who was later branded a heretic. E. Glenn Hinson, who was a professor of church history at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote an article on the history of glossolalia, which is tongues. And he says, quote, glossolalia has not enjoyed wide currency until recent times. The first 16 centuries of its history were lean ones indeed. Although we find several references in the early fathers, they leave us little doubt about the apparent insignificance of tongues in their day. Some contemporary scholars even doubt whether the Montanists, often cited as a prototype for the Pentecostals, actually practiced glossolalia. Then... If the first five centuries were lean, the next were starvation periods for the practice in Western Christendom and even doubtful ones in Eastern Christendom. The fewer scattered references of it are dubious in themselves. 
and made even more dubious by the characteristic credulity of the Middle Ages. Then in the 17th century, first among the English dissenters and then among the seven alls in France, they began to butt again, I guess. For the next two centuries, we can discern new bursts, outbursts here, those like prairie grass on a spring shower. Only in the 20th century has it really prospered. And he continues to write about how tongues has had its resurgence in the 17th to 19th centuries among those who would be the rants, the Quakers, the Shakers, and the Mormons who also practice tongues. And as a side note, those of you who are going this summer to or who have been to La Push know that there's a Shaker church right there, right in the middle of the tribe founded by Anne Lee. And those of you who know a little bit of history, she claimed to be the second incarnation of Jesus Christ. They acknowledged her as the mother in Christ and they reject the Trinity, they reject the bodily resurrection, they reject an atonement for sin and they practice tongues though. They practice tongues, dancing, ecstatic states of a higher form of worship. They built a new building out there in La Push. But from a time of the early church until recent days, there's really been an absence of tongues. And the exercise and the existence is virtually non-existence. And even in the times that it was, it was historically dubious at best. And even those who would believe in a continuation of all the gifts would therefore then admit that because it's well documented, it's not really an argument. They would say, but now it's the latter rain movement related to a latter pouring of the Holy Spirit in the end times, knowing that there's been this historical drought. The latter rain refers to the spring rains and the early rains would be the fall rains when in Israel they would have crops and they would say this is the latter rain. But history argues and says that in the past there really has been no manifestation of tongues because of its purpose as it says in the book of Mark, to establish and confirm the word of God. And history shows that in only in the past century and a half has there been a resurgence in the interest of tongues. And these tongues that are spoken today in modern day churches is not the same as those. They are not known languages in which somebody knows some foreign language they've never studied, never heard before, and they speak it and somebody else understands it because they're sharing the gospel. Now, someone will lodge the objection oftentimes and they say, well, look, I can agree with you. I can agree that they're not absolutely necessary today. But what about those reports out in some mission field far away of somebody sharing the gospel and somebody else who doesn't even know English or whatever it is, hear it in their own language? Are you saying that God, who is all powerful, cannot make somebody speak in a language miraculously? to them that they understand? And the answer, I don't believe, is real complicated. Can God make somebody miraculously cause them to speak in a language they don't know to communicate the gospel? I believe the answer would be yes. It's possible. Though not probable, though not necessarily a regular occurrence, there can be many things that happen Miracles, healings, other things like that. That is exactly what they are. They are miracles. 
They are miracles. God is an all-powerful God. God can do things like that. But if God so chose to, God could move the mouth of somebody, I believe, and give them understanding. It would be a miracle. But it would be wholly different than the gift of tongues in the New Testament where somebody on a regular basis exhibits uh, speaking in a known language. If somebody could do that, I'll tell you, Wycliffe Bible translators would surely want them. Or pioneering work in the field, in the mission field, would surely want them. The tongues displayed in the New Testament times were those that were given so that they might be assigned to establish the early church, assigned to unbelievers. Some would argue with me and say, well, no, it was a gift of tongues. God gives it to them. Then He takes it away when they come back to the States. Then He gives it to them, but then He takes it away. And then He gives it to them when they need it, and then He gives it away. I don't think that's how God intended spiritual gifts to be, and we'll see that sometime later on. That God gives gifts. He doesn't give a gift and then takes it away. Gives a gift and then takes it away. Somebody who has the gift of mercy. God makes them compassionate one moment and then mean the next. (laughs) Gift of tongues displayed in the text of the New Testament was for a sign, and they faded away with little evidence of its continuation. When we compare the New Testament gift, a known language to modern day tongue speakers, they're very, very different. And again, it's not to say that those who speak in tongues or believe that they do, I should say, really have less of a passion. In fact, many times they're more fervent than those that don't. It is not to say that they do not desire to study the Word of God or are not more devoted to the Lord or less devoted. It is simply whether or not this gift continues on. And with that comes the interpretation of tongues. The gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues go together. There would be some in the New Testament who would need to help others understand what was being said. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, at the most three, And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. When the gift of tongues passed, so did the gift of interpretation of tongues. But now we come to the last portion here, a summation of what really this whole section is about. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit, verse 11, works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. In conclusion, the Holy Spirit gives to everyone gifts. Gifts that they were to use. And it is the Spirit of God that works in and through you to exercise those gifts or energizes those things. Works all of these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. It is by the will of God. So there is no division, no envy, no jealousy, no type of thing where one is exalted and one is not because it's the Spirit of God who has given to each one an individual gift. Time and time again, Paul reminds the Corinthians that one person is not better than another believer, but the Spirit of God has given the gifts for the common good. And we are to use those gifts Because many times we realize we haven't been faithful in the exercising of our gifts. It is for the common good, as we have learned. 
Bill Bright, Campus Crusade founder, the late Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, he tells a story, a very well-known story called Yates Pool. During the Depression, there was a sheep ranch owned by a man named Yates. He wasn't able to make enough on his ranching operation to pay for the principal and the interest in his mortgage. and He was in danger of losing his ranch. With little money, and he didn't have much money for food or clothes, his family had to live off of the government subsidy they were being given. And day after day, he grazed his sheep over the rolling Texas hills, and he was always bothered about how he would pay his bills. Till one day, there's a seismic crew that came from oil company that came into his area and told him that there might be oil on his land, and they asked for permission to drill a wildcat well. And he signed a lease contract. At 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. That first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were more than twice as large. And in fact, 30 years after its discovery, the government test of one well showed that it still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. After 30 years... He had owned it all. The day he purchased the land, he had received the oil and mineral rights and he had been living, though, off of a mere government subsidy. A multi-millionaire living in poverty. Why? Because he never knew that he had owned it all. A summary idea is that, you know what, Christians have it too. They're living perhaps in spiritual poverty. They, they just have these gifts that the Lord has given to you and yet somehow they feel like, well, I'm nothing special. I can't do like so-and-so does. I'm not a big person who's up front. I'm kind of shy. I'm behind. I don't have this or I'm not like that. I'm not as bright or as gifted as they are. You know, God has made each one individual a specific purpose and a specific gift mix that you are special in the body of Christ. And that we are to use the gifts that God has given to us, not for ourselves, not so that we ourselves will simply benefit, but for the body of Christ, that they might be blessed. And God has gifted each one, each one by His Spirit, in a unique way. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks. We pray, Father, that you would continue, Lord, to teach us and give us discernment. And may we, Father, use our gifts that we might serve the body of Christ for your glory and your kingdom's sake. Amen.